0: You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come Myth Behave with us? Hello and welcome to Myth Behaving. This is episode number 22 of the Myth Behaving podcast and we're recording on November 17th. I'm Carla Clifton and I am joined by my normal co-host, Mayor Wilson. Hey Mayor, how are you?
1: I'm fine, Miss Carla. How are you today?
0: Very well, indeed. Thank you.
1: Been a busy, busy day around here. As we're getting ready, we have a writing contest going on and all sorts of exciting things happening.
0: Ooh, that sounds like so much fun. It is.
1: It is. Each myth-behaving show features a special guest from the literary world. It could be a writer, publisher, agent, editor, or anyone else connected with the world of publishing
0: plus we have several special segments related to reading or writing be very quiet
1: books in the library of a myth that means it's time for something from the library of a myth and today i'm recommending the award-winning novel nightingale by david farland I love this young adult fantasy. The writing was excellent. The story is really different from the usual of YA novels that I've read, and of course, I I read a lot of them. We have a teenage boy is moved to a new foster family, and once he does, the action just never seems to stop. His new foster mother knows right away that there's something different about her new foster son, because she's also different, and I'm not going to give it away, but she suspects that he's one of the nightingales of her people, and I'm not going to give any of the other little tidbits away because I loved discovering all of the mysteries and everything. And the ending of this book was just awesome.
0: Well, that must mean that our special guest today is David Farland also known as David Wolverton. Welcome to the show, Dave, and thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hi, it's great to great to be here, Carla and Mayor.
1: Well, we're thrilled to have you chat with us. You've had such a fascinating and prolific career. Congratulations on everything you've accomplished so far, by the way. Uh, your readers, obviously, were all looking forward to, to more and more more writing. And you've written the popular Rune Lord series, Star Wars novels, so, so much in your background under the two different names. Would you do us a favor and tell our listeners why you chose to write under two names?
2: Oh, that's pretty easy. Um, I started out my career writing science fiction under my real name. And uh, I got to the point where after 10 years of writing science fiction, I really had been wanting to write some fantasy. and uh it just seemed like a good time to to switch names i had been I had read a review one day that said, you know, look down at the bottom of the bookshelves in this in the bookstores where Dave Wolverton's books hang out. And I remember reading a survey that said that um, 70 uh, 75 80% of all people wouldn't get down to pick up their favorite can of soup if they had to bend over. And I thought, you know, with all the bad backs in the world, uh, why don't I have something that puts me up higher on the bookshelf? So I really just decided that that was the that was it. I needed to do it. And um So I I went and looked for a name. Um, I had an old family name, uh, McFarland. So I had a a granny Farland, five, Generations back, so it just seemed like a good choice.
0: Sounds like I, a good name.
1: I love that. I love that story. That is so fascinating. Of course, with Wilson, I'm in big trouble uh, yeah. if I were in actual bookstores. Well, but, <laughs> so I think now we probably are, are are both pretty thankful we have the internet because it's it's not so much uh, yeah not so much uh, alphabetical were, order, is it?
2: If I were in today's world, I wouldn't bother. I would just keep the Wolverton and, and go that way. But it, it made a lot of sense for the book
1: source. It does. It does. It does. And it, and that's right because you know by the time you get d- get down to the end of the alphabet you're you're like your arms are full of books by that point in
0: time. Yeah, but you know that the, the most wonderful thing about all that is is if you like what someone's writing, you're going to get down on your hands and knees to grab that book off the bottom shelf. Trust me, I do that <laughs> when I'm I, going. I, and...
2: I, I have to admit, there's been many times where I've crawled around the bookstore looking for my favorite authors, you know, the, the undiscovered ones that nobody else knows about.
0: <laughs> exactly. So I wouldn't care if it was on the top shelf or the bottom. I would find it if I could. Yeah, yeah I've been known to,
1: to sit in the aisles in the library as I'm perusing, <laughs> perusing exactly. the
2: shelves. Yep, absolutely. But I did get in a car accident a few years ago, and, and my back got kind of dinged up, and so it's a lot harder now than it used to be. So uh, so hopefully I'm saving a few backs by, by staying David Farland.
0: Well, we won't talk about that and getting older, Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> of Truth and Misery. Of Truth in Mythery is a segment where we take a commonly held publishing or writing belief and examine whether it's true or just another myth. Dave, feel free to answer this one for us. Once an author such as yourself is established, rejections are a thing of the past. Is that false or true?
2: You know, it, it's an interesting question because um, I'm, I'm sure that I get a a, a little bit, um, well, let me put it this way. I used to be a prize writer, and I won a lot of prizes, and that's how I started writing. And uh, And I soon got to the point where everything that I was writing was pub- being published. But still, you know, there there's that odd story that... Uh, or novel uh, idea that you send, and um, and you have a devil of a time trying to find a home for it. So that's definitely a piece of fiction.
1: Excellent. That's interesting because you wouldn't you wouldn't think that once you've got a, a solid reputation that you would have rejections. But uh...
2: well, you know, part of part of it is I think that um, I like to do a lot of different things. You know, and so I I, uh, I wrote my first science fiction novel and I won an award and became a bestseller with it and my editor asked me she said so what do you want to write next and i said well i want to write a big fat fantasy novel sort of a lord of the rings kind of thing and uh and she says well dave you're a best-selling science fiction author it takes most people 20 years to get where you got with your first novel so we don't want to see any fantasy from you and uh so i started writing fantasy as a present to myself after my 10th anniversary as a writer and uh and that took off and I became a New York Times best selling fantasy author. And I talked to my editor a couple of years ago and I suggested that I'd like to write another science fiction novel. And he said, Dave, you're a Best selling fantasy author. We don't want to see any science fiction from you. So I, I think you get pigeonholed just as actors, you know, get uh, pigeonholed into doing certain types of roles. Authors get pigeonholed into different types of genres. And um, once you get into a genre, you may have difficulty getting out. There used to be a read right about a sign outside of an old ghost town that says, uh, pick your rut, you're going to be stuck in it for the next 20 miles. And uh, wow. <laughs> I think authors are that way. We often have to sort of pick the rut that we're going to to, uh, to drive through for the next 20 miles. and uh, Hopefully we can break out of that from time to time.
1: Well, you've been able to do it, and obviously very successfully, which I think is pretty much inspirational for anybody else who does not want to be just um, pigeonholed into one genre, but I think that's loosening up some more so than it used to be. Do you feel that way? Absolutely.
2: I mean, the truth is, is that, um, you know, 10 years ago, if you wanted to publish, you were pretty much at the mercy of the publishers, but today we can go ahead. And if I want to do something that's outside the box, I can go ahead and put it up as an ebook and, uh, do just fine. You know, um, uh and basically start a new career or or you know sell to my fans uh the things that my editors wouldn't necessarily take so um so yeah we're we're living in a world where authors can stretch their wings um, I have a friend, Tracy Hickman, who um, had a series that he wanted to do. He said, I'm tired of writing about people going off and fighting wars in fantasy. I just want to write a fantasy where people are living in a little town and it's sort of, the you know, personal gossip and triumphs and tragedies of, you know, having babies and growing up and, and those types of things. And he couldn't find a publisher for it. He put it out and started selling it. It sold so well online that, of course, a major publisher had to pick it up almost immediately. Um, but, but that's kind of the way that we end up doing it nowadays. We, we just, you know, stick your, uh, you know, stick your chin up and say, I'm going to take it, you know, uh, I'm going to take it on the chin. I'll go out and, and, uh. Put my own effort, and my own time into it, and see what happens.
0: Wow, that is interesting to hear that story about Tracy Hickman. Didn't doesn't he write a Dragonlance series? And
2: yeah, yeah, he did the Dragonlance series and uh, a number of best-selling series for for Bantam and um, uh, also and uh, Del Rey. uh, That's what I
0: thought. I've read every one of his books except those fantasies Uh, (laughs) because uh, I loved that series. I mean, it was just amazing. My husband got me into them and then we passed our love for those, that series of books onto my son. Mm -hmm. So. We've all the whole family has enjoyed that series. So. Yeah. Well, Dave, your writing career actually be-
1: began what back in the late 1980s. Were you writing before that? You know, and I, what got you into it? Yeah, I
2: started writing in the 1970s um, as a as a teenager, and uh, I I had read Tolkien and uh, had read every fantasy novel that I could lay my hands on, and then I started reading science fiction novels. And one day I was at work. Um, worked as a meat cutter and i was talking to one of the guys and started telling him a story that i began making up and uh he says you know you ought to take all of this all this crud and put it in a book and i thought well wait a minute that's exactly what tolkien and all these other people did you know so i went out and bought myself a used typewriter and uh began typing up my first novel and uh hiding the manuscript pages between the uh, uh between my mattresses and uh I worked on it and got stuck after a little bit, and uh, so I started a new novel and got about 10 chapters in and got stuck there, and then I thought, I better go learn how to write before I write anything. So I bought all the books on writing that I possibly could down at the local university, Um, and I started writing and studying writing on the side, but it wasn't until I was in college. I was a premedical microbiology major, and uh, I thought I'd be a, a doctor who wrote a little bit on the side or something. And uh, I just found that the writing bug became so strong that I decided to just chuck the pre-med and and go into writing. And so I uh, switched majors in college and started writing. And uh, uh, my very first story won a a little award. And uh, I thought, you know, I wrote this story. I made $7 an hour while doing it. I could really use a part-time job. I decided I'd try to win some prize money, and um, I went out and wrote a bunch of stories and sent them all off a few months later. And uh, I was hoping to win first place in a contest, and I ended up winning first place in all the contests that I entered. so
1: that, uh, that doesn't surprise me <laughs> that you won.
2: <laughs> so at that point, uh, my career just took off. Um, I won the uh, International Writers of the Future Contest. Uh, we had the award ceremony on top of the New York uh, uh, top of the World Trade Center in New York um and uh when we did that i had uh, eight different editors who approached me from different uh publishing houses uh, each of them asking if they could see my first novel manuscript i happened to have a couple of copies of a novel proposal in my suitcase while i was there just in case i met an editor um so i found an editor uh i went and got myself an agent uh within the next week and, and within a week i had a, a three novel contract with bantam books so my career wow. just kind of took off uh really well and um, of course my first book went out and won an award and like i say hit the bestseller list that kind of set the tone for my career
0: well, that's sounds, a fabulous story. it is and it sounds like you have picked the right field i mean as much as we hate that you weren't a, you didn't end up being a doctor and 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 doing all these other things it sounds like this was just your calling.
2: Well, if I was well, performing brain surgery on you and saved your life, you'd be thanking me for that too, I'm sure. <laughs>
1: absolutely. But your 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 fans are pretty happy that you 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 went the route you did, Dave. I can I can testify as one of them anyway.
2: Yeah, well I sure uh, I sure feel like it's been a lot of fun. That's that's one thing that uh, I can
0: guarantee. It's time for Mythprint. Tips and tricks of the industry. It's time again for another one of our special segments. Mythprint includes a basic tip concerning writing, marketing, or anything else to do with the industry. Dave, you have a reputation for helping out new authors. Do you have any tips you could share about getting published? You know, the,
2: the interesting thing that I find is, that, and I, I've I've trained literally. Um, gosh, 15 years ago I, I actually started adding it up and I had I had helped 500 different people get published at that time and there's been hundreds more of course since then and and you're familiar with some of them Brandon Sanderson, Brandon mole, Stephanie Meyer, um, uh, a number of them uh, are people that came to me before they ever published and, and are now number one New York Times bestsellers. but um, the the big thing that I think is that most, people who want to get published uh, either like to study or they like to write and i know writers who go out and they write reams and reams of stuff and they never get any better because they don't study they don't um, you know they don't they don't uh, learn any techni- techniques new techniques or you know do any any book study so i really think that and then of course i know people who understand it all in principle but then they never want to sit down and actually write so i think it really re- really requires you to To have a balance where you study and you write and you say, I want to learn this technique and you go out and practice writing and using that technique. And then you say, I want to learn how to do this. And then you go practice that new technique and and just on and on. That's really the secret. I think um, just about anybody who wants it badly enough can learn how to write, but it really just takes a lot of study and practice.
1: That's an awesome tip. You know, writing is a process of so very many things. What do you love most? It's obvious you love it, but what do you yeah. love most about what you do?
2: I I love the fact that, um, you know, I, I have worked I've worked in a number of fields. You know, I've worked as a, a business manager and a prison guard and uh, as a missionary. And, and one of the things that has happened to me every time I've gotten a job is I'm put into a management position and uh end up having anywhere between 30 and 150 people working under me and uh and i really hate that (laughs) i i hate uh i hate herding cats uh so i love the fact that with writing i'm my own boss i can uh you know i I woke up this morning and i hopped out of bed at five in the morning and went to work and uh you know if i had to wait until nine o'clock to go in to write Um, I think that that would just be the death of me. So I can get up and do it when I want. And if I get really tired, I can go take a nap. If I want, I can sit around and write in my pajamas all day. Um, There's there's just this freedom that comes with writing that you can't find in very many other fields.
0: That is such an amazing truth, you know, because you are your own boss and you are the master of your destiny. So I love your answer. Is there anything about the process of writing that you don't like?
2: Oh my gosh. Um, you know, for me, I don't know if there's anything that I don't like, you know, I, I find that, um, that once I get into a story, once I get involved, it's sort of like you take your mind and you visit an imaginary place and you've got these imaginary people and you're talking through them and they say things that surprise you and do things that you wouldn't have thought they'd do. And uh, and and there's that joy of discovery as you're writing. But um, uh, the hard part is there are those days when it's just difficult to get into your world and to sit down and you're sitting there just feeling blocked or or blanked out or something, you know, um, and very often I find that when that happens to me, that it's because I, I made a mistake 15 or 20 pages earlier. And my subconscious is saying, I'm not going with you any farther until you go back and, and fix this, you know? Um, but for me, it's those, those moments when you just feel stuck, you know, those days when, uh, you know, your subconscious mind likes to worry about other things besides your writing. So if you've uh, if you've got money uh, money problems or health problems or relationship problems or something, um, you can find that it's really hard for you to focus on your writing. And so, losing focus, I think, is the thing that I hate about it.
0: Authors work. In so many different ways. Are you a planner outlining everything and making extensive notes? Or are you a pantser flying by the seat of your pants and letting the book go wherever it will?
2: Well, I do both. Um, I have uh, have written stories where uh, I just write by the seat of my pants and see where it takes me. And I find that I think I write better when I when I plot it out. Um I wrote a book called Million Dollar Outlines, which is a, a book on outlining that uh has been on the Amazon bestseller list for, for about uh eight months now, something like that. Uh which really kind of details my method, uh, which is, you know, I, I like to sit down and come up with it, but but the truth is I don't really do either one completely i find that i still like to have that sense of mystery so i'll often outline a third of a novel maybe my opening third and go up a little bit and uh, i'll outline that and then i'll write and i'd like to leave myself open in case a new idea uh, occurs to me or in case i have a new character that i think of that i might really like or something like that so for me it's this process where i write a third go stop go outline again write another third stop Go outline the last third of it, and uh, and then I'm off to the races.
0: Cool process.
1: That's a really interesting process. It really is. Well, I don't think that anybody
2: can keep an entire novel in their mind. At least not one of these great big fat complex fantasies <laughs> like what I'm doing. Um, and so I you know, maybe maybe it's because writing a a third of a big fat fantasy is, is like writing a, is, you know, outlining a third of one is about outlining, is about like outlining a full novel, um, in another genre. So it might be part of that. But, uh, when I get something really big and complex, I, I like to have an idea where I'm going, but, um, but not necessarily be locked into it.
1: Yeah. I, I, I love that process. That's really interesting. I don't outline. i complete pantser so i i find i find my friends that outline are they fascinate me because it's like okay so what happens if you get to this point and and of course they all have the same answer but what happens when you get to this point and your book goes someplace that you didn't expect but you've got the perfect solution for that because you're not getting too far ahead of yourself i think that's Uh. fabulous
2: Yeah, I like I like to keep it. um, I I like to be able to sort of go with the flow just a little bit, you know, Uh, and so I have it. I have a pretty good idea of where I'm going. But I'm I'm like you. There's been those days where all of a sudden I go, wait a minute, that guy that's supposed to be my protagonist's best friend is really the villain. And I didn't see that. And then you go back and you look at it and it's like for the last 150 pages, your subconscious has been telling you that all along. You know, all of his all of his uh, words can be seen as double entendres and, you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, it it happens. You know, Uh, you have two brains that are put together with a little you know, not of of uh, fibers, and they're talking to each other, but sometimes they don't talk to each other quite well enough. And one of them goes off in a direction that the other one doesn't want to go or something. And anyway, so you've got to be able to try to figure out how to handle that when it happens.
1: Yeah, I I love I love your solution to it, though. That's just so elegant. It's just such an elegant solution to balance between the two. So I really like that. I should try outlining a little part of one of my books maybe next time you know nightingale is the first book in a, a new series and would you tell us a little bit about the series itself and also when we can expect the next book okay Be pretty pleased.
2: <laughs> nightingale is uh is about a young man who uh as as you said is uh raised in foster care he was um, abandoned at birth and kicked around from house to house and uh it uh, seems that people that knew him thought that he was both too talented and too strange. And so they, they would get scared of him and they would abandon him. And he, he gets kicked out of his home um, at the age of 16 and uh, goes to live with a teacher uh, in, uh, in Utah, this uh, woman who works at a, a school for children who are into the performing arts. And it turns out to be sort of the perfect place for him. But the teacher recognizes almost immediately that he's not human, and uh, and he's never known that. So it's a story about him discovering who and what he is, and discovering who his people are, and what's going on uh, in the world with them. And uh, of course, the first book has won half a dozen different awards, and you know I had a lot of fun with it. And I'm just finishing up right now the last Rune Lord's novel, and uh, I hope to have that done before Thanksgiving. And then I'm going to jump in and uh, work on the next Nightingale book. And I think it's going to be done pretty quick. I've been raring to go on this one for several months now. Um, so my pre-writing, I think, is done. A lot of times you've got to let these things, um, you got to let them uh, sort of sit and ferment for a while. And, uh, and I've had a, about a year and a half to ferment, and that's too long for me to ferment. Um, <laughs> You know, the bottles are ready to burst right now. So um, I, I think it'll probably be ready sometime in the spring. And uh, I I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to go with this. If I'm going to publish it as an ebook, or if I'll keep putting out the hardcovers, or do it as a POD and ebook, I'll probably do it that way. I'll probably have print on demand and ebooks. Uh, I just see that the print on demand uh, system works so much better for novels nowadays, which is why so many authors are doing it.
0: Well, that sounds really exciting. I can't wait for spring now. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Well, we've seen a lot of changes in the industry just in the last couple of years. How do you feel about the changes and how have they impacted your own work? Well,
2: you know, the changes are, are interesting um, because, you know, publishing hasn't changed much, you know, in uh, at least 400 years. And the distribution, the distribution methods have changed a lot. But suddenly we're in a whole new world where I can write a book and I can finish it today. And if I were of the mind to put it up immediately, I could be selling it in India and, you know, often Spain and France and all these different places around the world just with a push of the button. And so it's really going to give authors a lot of freedom and a lot of access that maybe we haven't had before. Um, you know, I've been published in about 25 different languages, and, um, and still sometimes it's hard to break in. If you've got a new book or a new series, it may be hard to get into uh, France or Germany or someplace like that. So it gives you a lot of freedom. And the other thing that it does is it gives you freedom to write new kinds of things, to be a little bit more experimental. I've been wanting for a long time to write really big novels, 300,000 word uh, tomes, I guess you might call them. And my publishers have always said, no, no, you've got to keep it down under 130,000, you know. Uh, And so if I write a big 300,000 word novel, my uh, publisher would just chop it into two probably. Um, But the idea is that, you know, I, I like stories that have a lot of world building in them and that um, can really take you to someplace that's new and interesting that you've never seen before. And so I look at it and I go, you know, this world is changing in a way that um, if I want to write a big world building uh, fantasy novel, I could write it and sell it in 50,000 word chunks or something like that, um, as individual novels, which is what a lot of authors are doing. They're kind of moving back to a serialization method, the way that Charles Dickens used to publish or, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, I, I like that. Uh, I like the fact that it gives you a bit more artistic freedom. Um, at the same time, you know, I kind of miss the fact that, uh, you don't have a big publisher who has, a a good, strong marketing arm that's out there beating the bushes and making sure that your books get put on the bookshelves and the major chains and that kind of thing. Um, but we're going to see a lot more changes in the next you know, uh, five years, I think. I, I, it's really going to be interesting to see what happens.
1: That's a fascinating answer. <laughs> I just had to interject that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's it's been it's been a rough ride the last couple of years for established authors because um, you know, the ebooks kind of took off and the number of sales that you were making uh, in and uh, paperbacks and everything has dropped, and you had to get yourself into a position where you could start getting your revenue from the new ebooks. books And uh, so it's, it's, it's changing a lot of things. It, it makes you unsure as to whether, you know, do I need a publisher anymore? You know, does David Farland need a publisher, or is he his own publisher? Should that be the way that I go? And um, a lot of authors are are asking themselves these kinds of questions. You know, I I kind of uh, love my publisher, and uh, don't don't really ever want to have to uh, you know go completely out in the cold. But at the same time. Um, you know, we we might be in a position in five or ten years where our, some of our publishers are not going to be around. Maybe you know, so we have to we have to look at it this way, and and uh, just you got to roll with the punches, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like anything else in business, you know. And writing is a business, you know, a very big business, and that is diversification. You know, you have to diversify and not put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak.
2: Exactly. I don't want to. I don't want to say I'm going to turn my back on my publisher, but it, you know, there's all these people say, "Oh, are you going to be an independent?" Are you going to go with the traditional route? Right. And I don't think it should be an either or answer. I think it should be and. You know. Yes,
1: Exactly. I'm to both. And I'm seeing, I'm seeing that, you know, Dave, more and more with friends of mine who are are trade that are actually self publishing other books. You, you know, they've got their trade books out there, and then they're also doing things self publishing. So it's a really interesting uh, amalgamation, if you will, of the two processes. It's really interesting watching it. And because I have indie friends who are writers, and then I, of course, have the trade writers. So it's really fascinating watching the different choices that they're all making. It really it really is interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. One of my old friends, Dean Wesley Smith, always says, you know, there there isn't a path to success. There's a whole bunch of different paths, and almost every author has to sort of figure out his own way you know uh the thing that worked for me may not work for you you know i i started out as a prize writer and and uh, i never tell anybody uh oh yeah go out and enter all these contests and win them all and then you know you'll get a publishing contract um that's just i i'm the only person i know who's done that but but each one of us is you know taking our own separate path trying to figure this out the myth
1: number And now it's time for Myth Nomer, our word or phrase for today. And today's phrase is, in honor of Dave, world building, because I believe you've just built so many fascinating worlds. Do you have any special tips to give specifically for world building? Oh my
2: gosh, you know, world building is is really uh, uh, such a a challenging task. I think that's why I love it so much, Um, because if I'm going to build a new world, one of the things that people don't think about is, you know, as a fantasy author, they think, oh, you just make it up and it doesn't have to be consistent. But um, years ago, I read a book by Isaac Asimov that was written for, um, for young adults on uh, world building books for science fiction. And he said, you know, when you start creating a world, you have to figure out what kind of star the world is going to be surrounding and what, you know, what class of planet it's going to be. And you have to figure out the specific gravity and how much of a nickel iron core and how much of a carbonaceous core you're going to have. You have to figure out how fast the planet is is rotating around the sun and how fast it's revolving as it spins uh, so that you figure out the days. And then you have to figure out the tilt to the planet and uh, how much exposure it gets in the spring and the summer versus the winter so that you know how much ice is on the poles. And you have to figure out, you know, if you're building a planet, uh, all these different types of things. And it just sounded really, um, to me, it sounded you know just like a completely different method for creating a world that i that i would have taken if i'd written a fantasy world but i find it works really great for fantasy <laughs> to to sit down and immediately the first step is to to design your world um so that you know things like that that as you start developing your uh, as you start creating your flora and your fauna you um uh, you can sit down and say, okay, so what's the evolutionary path that this creature took, uh, you know, as, as it became, you know, I, I had to go back and say, okay, in the underworld, on the rune lords, I have these creatures called reavers. What was their evolutionary path? And I get to think about that and their their past history. But then the same thing happens with societies. You know, as you start creating worlds, you have to start thinking about their history and how they develop over time and so i have to look at it and i say what's the philosophical history of this world how do their thought processing e- processes evolve so that they believe what they believe and they do what they do or what is their uh mythological history you know what's the what myths have grown up in their world uh what do they believe is true that isn't true and what do they believe that's fable that really is true um, and I start asking myself all of these questions, and I have to create the societies. And I say, okay, for every culture, there's a counterculture. You know, if you've got this society, who would disagree with it, and what would they do about it? And and so for me, it's a, it's a really involved um, kind of a little mind game, you know, where I sit down and I think about magic systems and languages and uh, customs and all sorts of things like that. And I just have a lot of fun with it, uh, just trying to create something that's new and fresh.
0: Oh my gosh. I had never really given it that much thought about what was all involved in building a world and just listening to you speak about it. And my mind was going, you know, 10 million miles an hour thinking. Oh, that makes such perfect sense. That is so intricate. No wonder your books are so fabulous.
2: Yeah, it it is. Your mind is going 10,000 miles an hour, and it seems like every thought's heading off in its own direction. You
0: know? Absolutely. Takes Well, it takes... I
1: think one of the things, Dave, that makes your book so special is because you have thought all that out, and you're consistent. Yeah. With, especially in your series, you're consistent with, with – It's it's a very logical – I like my fantasy. I like my my books to be realistic in, in their fantasy. <laughs> I want my fantasy to be plausible. And yours is. And I think that's it's because of that attention to detail.
2: Yeah. I think, uh, you know, William Shakespeare, when he wrote uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, he was dealing with, I think, as an author, he or as an artist, he was looking at this and saying, okay, you know, fantasy stories really intrigue people. But in order to really move a person, you have to be deeply in touch with reality, and so he has these two tales going side by side: one that's very realistic and one that's very fantastic. And ultimately, uh, I think it's the realistic tale that is the one that moves you to tears. And the, the truth is that if you're going to have a fantasy that works, it has to be grounded in reality.
0: I agree. Awesome, awesome answer. All righty. Well, now let's get to something very exciting. If you could have a dinner party. With any seven people, living, dead, or fictional, who would you include?
2: Well, let's see. That would be a good, fun list. Uh, First of all, um, I I definitely have William Shakespeare, since I just mentioned his name. He's been one of my favorites. Um, A second person on my list would uh, definitely, and I don't know if I'd be my second. I'd I'd probably have to put him first. put Jesus on there. Uh, Always wanted to have a dinner party with him um so then we've got uh probably george lucas you know who uh the director of star wars is gonna have to get him in there um plato would be one of my favorites i'd like to to have him in there's a dead poet by the name of theodore rutke who's my favorite poet so i'm going to pull him onto my list uh let's see i think i would uh definitely want to have jrr tolkien as one of my favorite authors and uh as one of my favorite film stars um i always liked sir laurence olivier so uh i think that rounds out my seven.
0: Oh my gosh what a wonderful group yeah now that's another party i want to go to Me <laughs> i to a fly on the
1: wall for that one and you know,
2: there's no room in my party for Adolf Hitler, so we'll just have to leave him off.
0: <laughs>
1: Absolutely. What question, Dave, do you never get asked? Because you have been interviewed so many times. But there's a question maybe that you really wish somebody would ask you. And what would your answer be?
2: You know, um, a lot of times I'm asked uh to come up with ideas to uh you know on writing lessons for uh, for writing workshops and seminars and things like that, and it seems to me like most of the people who are on the writing panels come up with the same ideas over and over again as far as questions. And uh, and I I often ask them. Um, I, I often wish that they would say, "Could you? Uh, could could we have a panel or a discussion on the use of resonance in writing? Uh, resonance is." In writing is uh, when you've got a story or uh, a work of fiction out there, uh, it impacts everyone who reads it. So that uh, you know it, it changes literature. You know we're part of this big global community of writers that goes back, you know, hundreds of years. And so when you write something and you write a scene or a character. Uh, It kind of echoes with what's happened in the past so that, for example, in romance, it's very popular for men to have gray eyes, G-R-E-Y, which is the English spelling. And why is it popular for them to have gray eyes? Because Heathcliff had gray eyes, you know, 200 years ago. Um, And so we have little things like that that come in and, and they become part of the part of the language of the genre. And I would just like to have people say, gosh, can we talk about that um, at a a convention? I wrote a little book on it called Drawing on the Power of Resonance in Writing, uh, just because nobody ever asked me the question.
0: (laughs) Well, that's one way to answer it. So, you know, we know what you wish someone would ask. You know, everyone has their own personal myths, things that a lot of people think about us that may or may not be true, your own personal myth behavior. What myth behavior do people believe about you that is absolutely not true? You
2: know, I've been thinking about that kind of question. I'm not sure what people believe about me. You know, as a writer, I'm sort of this, um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, a hermit, I think, in some ways. Um, I I get up in the morning, and I go write, and I talk to imaginary people all day, and uh, I don't get enough time with real people. And so as far as what my fans believe about me, I think the biggest myth that I hear is people uh, often wonder if I'm dead, okay? Is Dave Wolverton dead? Because they say, yes, my favorite author of all time was Dave Wolverton, and he just disappeared and but then a few years later, I found out David Farland uh, was this really good author that I loved. And then I suddenly just found out that Dave Wolverton and Dave Farland are the same person. And so I get those kinds of things. So I think the myth that I'm dead, that's the that's the one that bothers me the most.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one would probably not be a good one to have. Yeah. Yeah. But keeping in with this now, what myth behavior do people believe about you that really is true? Of course, we know that you're not dead because we're talking to you.
2: Yeah, what do they believe about me that really is true? Um, you know, a lot of people uh there there is a little bit of a myth that um that uh, I'm into organized crime and uh and some people call me the godfather of uh of the Mormon mafia, the uh, Mormon young adult writers. And um and there's a little bit of a truth to that. My grandfather uh was a mobster. And uh, wanted me to follow him uh, in his uh, life's work. Um, but uh, you know, at the age of 13, I just sort of rejected that. Oh, <laughs> so wow. there's, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of that back there.
0: That is so cool though. <laughs> I mean, it's such a different answer. I would have never expected that. Well, he
2: wasn't, he wasn't a very nice guy. <laughs> oh
0: well, you know, we can't pick our relatives. <laughs> So you got to love them the way they are. Well, I can't believe that this is already the end of our show. Dave, thank you so much for being our guest. We appreciate you sharing everything that you have with us today. And we, yeah, again, we just have really had a wonderful time. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, this, this was an awesome interview. I, I do appreciate you taking the time to, to be with us today. You've given us so much really, really great information. And I just want to interject because I, again, want to recognize that, that you have given so much back to the community of authors in, in helping so many authors that you have helped, uh, over the years and I just want to on behalf of your fans on behalf of their fans say thank you again for that because it, it's it's really awesome when someone is that generous with with their time and with their knowledge and it it is appreciated and I just wanted to, to pass that on to you.
2: Okay well thank you.
0: Well remember everyone you can go to mythbehaving.com for more information about David Farland and links to his books. You can also read his bio and find links to his social media.
1: And don't forget that you can download this episode right on iTunes or listen to it on the MythBehaving.com website.
0: Please take a moment to leave us a positive feedback on iTunes. That's how we move up the iTunes ladder.
1: And you you can subscribe to us on iTunes and never, ever miss an episode.
0: Well, thanks for tuning in to MythBehaving. We'll see you again next time. I'm Carla.
1: And I'm mare, and we are myth behaving where reality meets fantasy. See you soon.